0: Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 8th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program has gotten us past November 3rd, December 3rd, January 6th, January 20th, to where we are as we clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, four centuries and beyond. Today, we turn our sights to local drinking water and on the Poseidon desalination plant proposed in Huntington Beach. Under consideration on and off and now again. And now considering the merits of this massive infrastructure investment is Andrea Leon Grossman, Climate Action Director of Azul, Advancing Environmental Justice as Climate Change is Being Tackled in All Sectors on All Levels. A leading environmental justice advocate in California, she was previously with the Food and Water Watch. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to Digging Out and back to Radio KUCI, Andrea
1: Leon Grossman. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'd like to post listeners that we're recording this interview on March 5th because a great deal is happening in water circles in Southern California. Well, recently at a clinic, I was watching some shelter porn, you know, the home design shows. And I was thinking about preparing for the show and I thought we're missing infrastructure porn where customers, where consumers could learn to drool or they can geek out over immense water treatment plants, highways, bridges, rail, the good ones and the bad ones. Well, maybe we can get there with the listeners today covering the Poseidon desalination plan, decades into a multiple of jurisdiction reviews with a few kickstarts since its original proposal was submitted in 1999. And I wanna give a nod to Bettina Boxall's recent article in the Los Angeles Times, as Andrea will map out a considerable bump in the review process that occurred actually at the beginning of the pandemic last March. But let's first talk, Andrea, first, who benefits from the Poseidon project as it now stands, as it pencils out? Who are the winners? Who are the losers?
1: Well, the the winner, most than anyone, is basically Wall Street investors and Brookfield. And Brookfield is the parent company of Poseidon. That's a, a foreign corporation that is basically looking to get this approved as soon as possible and by any means possible. And the losers is basically the rest of us because this is a plan that we just don't need that is going to contribute to climate change and that they basically want to have operational for half a century.
0: So the rest of us, that means there's ratepayers, there's people that are paying off the bonds that are obligated in massive projects of the size, that means taxpayers, the rest of us, am I missing anybody?
1: So basically, it's everyone. I mean, right now, the sought $585 million in terms of a WIFIA EPA loan that is forgivable. So that means every American in the country. And they want more public money and that means a $400 million subsidy for metropolitan water District. So that means the whole region in Southern California. And they want a $1.1 billion allocation from CEDLAC. Um, and that's, again, uh, money from the state of California.
0: So just break down CEDLAC for all of us.
1: SeedLAC is the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee.
0: So they're reviewing expenditures, investments throughout the state.
1: So they basically want to build a $1.4 Billion-dollar plant with public money. They're actually soliciting two billion dollars to build a 1.4 billion-dollar plant. Uh, there's like the Met uh, subsidy, but the bigger one is the 1.1 billion dollars that comes from affordable housing from Seedlac. Yeah, and uh, Fiona Ma is in charge of that, and she said that she's she's going to consider that uh, for the 2022 allocation. And what is really tragic about that is not only that 1.1 billion, which is over a quarter of the money, uh, the total allocation will go to something like this to privatize water. But for every dollar that California spends on affordable housing, the feds give us 80 cents. So 80 cents on the dollar is pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't go to affordable housing. We get nothing. So Fiona Ma, we know where she's going to go. It's like a it's like a Democratic Party thing. You know, yeah, but but I, again, if we put pressure and and if you see, I mean, if you come to LA, it's heartbreaking. I've never seen how many, so many people who are unhoused. Are you going to really take a quarter of all the bond allocation? These are tax exempt bonds to privatize water instead of building affordable housing. It's not only 1.1 billion that we would be missing out on, but almost $2 billion if you count the 80 cents on the dollar that right. we could get from the Fed, right. missing out for affordable housing to build a stupid diesel plant that is going to privatize water. Uh-huh. And the other thing is that after the 50-year take or pay contract, they will hand it over to California. And they're trying to paint it as like, oh, they're so kind that they will hand it over to us. But it's the same thing. And my analogy is like, imagine that I just drop a clunker on each yeah. driveway in Orange County and tell right, right. you, you have to dispose of it. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and that yeah. includes stowing it. Yeah. So yeah, no. And, and it's very likely that if this thing gets filled, which I hope that it doesn't, Brookfield will sell it almost immediately, just like they did Carlsbad. They sold it to Aberdeen.
0: So now we know that the Carlsbad desalination project, it's operating to some extent. If you could talk to what lessons, environmental and financial, have been learned from Carlsbad to the south of us?
1: So it's very clear that once a Poseidon desalination plant goes online, the water costs just keep going up. If you look at operation costs from 2016 to 2019, every year the cost goes up. It's similar to a car. Once you get it, it doesn't get more efficient. <laughs> with time, it gets less efficient. And that's the case with cost back. Poseidon also claims that this is the only climate resilient way to get water. And that's also not true. What we had last year in April were two weeks of red ties in the algae bloom that we had where a lot of organisms were glowing in the dark and that caused the plant to shut down. And we know that with a, a warmer climate, we're going to get more of those incidents. So that's not going to make the plant be more reliable.
0: But that's when there is the bloom occurring. But the environmental consequences of a desalination plant are pretty extensive. And that that's important when we get to the, the mitigation element of the Poseidon proposed project, Honey Beach. What are those environmental shortcomings, Andrea?
1: So to start, we have a lot of marine mortality at the intakes. Those type of plants suck up all kinds of small microorganisms and small animals, basically through those intakes. We can only desal half of the water that we get. And the other half is this thick brine that usually warm and they dump back into the ocean along with other chemicals. So that kills other marine life. So if we're talking about a 50-year of doing that, we're talking massive dead zones in the ocean. We cannot have that. And that also comes with a huge carbon footprint because it uses an insane amount of energy to operate. It's about the same amount of 35,000 homes day in and day out. So we, we just simply don't need this type of water. That That's just way more energy than any other source of water that we're getting right now.
0: So I want to have listeners understand how important critical thinking is in this. When I attended a climate action meeting, it was convened, I believe it was the fall of 2019, and a Carlsbad city council member, it was Corey Schumacher. Andrea, I don't know if you were at that meeting then, but she clearly supports the Carlsbad desal plant. And she maintained at that meeting that their plant would clear a net zero carbon goal. And we all looked at each other like, how could that possibly be with such an energy intensive facility? So is this something that the proponents have tried to kind of, I don't, I wouldn't call it greenwash. I think it's just a disinformation kind of a slate of hand.
1: Yeah, there's different ways to do that. And again, net zero is not the same as zero. (laughs) And one way that they're painting a carbon neutrality for the Huntington Beach plant is by buying offsets. So we call that pay to pollute. And that means that they're going to buy carbon offsets. And a lot of them are going to be out of the state and even some out of the country. And some of them out ones of the that, country.
0: Like yeah, where? In,
1: in Ecuador. There's some forests in Ecuador that they want to buy uh, some carbon offsets. And those are very controversial too. And those uh, are hard
0: to monitor whether those are intact and viable.
1: That, well, that's that's one of the issues that we have, but even the ones that are here in the States. Those are very controversial as well, because some of the ones that they're tackling are or you know, counting on for, for these so-called carbon offset are also we deem them as dirty, like biomass and biogas. Biomass is basically burning wood chips or other type of um just for biological, yeah, exactly. Agriculture waste. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at where those incinerators are, are usually where low income people of color live. And I, that's another environmental injustice. So the fact that they will count that. As green energy to offset something that is going to be hurting other low-income communities of color here in Southern California is just absolutely horrible. And the same thing goes with biogas, and uh, they're counting towards these so-called uh, neutrality is in biodigesters. And some of those biodigesters are also located where low-income people of color live. And we know that they have way more emissions than other sources of energy that are truly clean and renewable. So again, it's just one of those things that they're trying to, I mean, seriously, some of it is greenwashing and some of it is just misinformation to claim this carbon neutrality. And uh, my understanding with Corey Schumacher was that she was at one point part of the board for the CCE, the Community Choice energy program. Right. That's, that was what there. the whole
0: climate action meeting was about. Exactly. Right.
1: And as of right now, I don't think that program has been put into effect. So we don't even know what kind of energy they're going to be buying. And that last proposal, they wanted to make that program 50% renewable energy and the other 50% will still come from dirty sources like gas and other energy that is not clean. So I'm not really sure what she was talking about. Uh, again, what, what, buying what, offsets is not having clean energy at the source, and that means people are gonna get hurt.
0: So what concerned me also about this, Andrea, was in that meeting, I mean, there there was one other activist, we sort of, we looked at each other in a little bit of a kind of terror, <laughs> but it didn't seem like the room palpably had misgivings about her claim. And that
1: wasn't a very reassuring feeling. Well, yeah, and, and again, once, people start talking about clean, renewable energy. There's a lot of nuance in that because again, there's a lot of corporate interest in there that they're using these type of falsehoods to promote dirty projects like Poseidon. And that's unfortunate because a lot of people don't understand some of these dirty sources like biomass and biogas and how they hurt other communities. And why we really do not need to be embracing carbon offsets or any kind of carbon trading schemes that Wall Street tends to embrace to basically greenwash the projects.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, my guest on Digging Out is Andrea Leon Grossman, Climate Action Director for Azul, talking about the Poseidon, the desalination water treatment facility proposed in Huntington Beach, and she's putting hearings and public comment deadlines on everyone's radars and everyone's calendars. We're recording this March 5th, 2021. So you were talking about there's a time frame now with this massive infrastructure investment. It's for, well, for Carlsbad, it's a 30-year lock-in. But the Poseidon applicants, as they are
1: called, they're aiming for like a 50-year lock-in. That's right. They want a 50-year take-or-pay contract. And that, what that means that it just rains every day in January and February. Or
0: conservation steps up.
1: Exactly. Which actually right now we have storage at an all-time high and we have demand at an all-time low, 40-year low, actually. So 40-year right low, now, wow. Yes. So right now we simply don't need this type of infrastructure. A lot of people ask me, well, look at Israel, they're doing it. And yes, they are. But if you look at their consumption per capita, you're talking about 50 gallons per person per day. While here in Southern California, we're using about three times as much. So we know that we can do a lot better in terms of conservation. And that pays immediately when we do that. And it's not just conservation, but it's efficiency. Like how can we adopt technology that allows us to use water in a more efficient way?
0: Well, um, uh, yes. And Andrea, I want to get the, when you're talking about comparing Israel, that, that's not just, it's avocados and oranges, not even apples and oranges, that their water management practices are way uh, like generations ahead of ours. So it's not a fair comparison.
1: No, it's not. Just simply looking at the per capita consumption is completely off. So I usually tell people if when, once we get our consumption at a third of what we have right now, come back and talk to me about that.
0: And there's another environmental piece I would like you to talk about is the vulnerability of the Poseidon project as proposed on the Huntington Beach shore, what the sea level rise would mean for its vulnerability.
1: Well, there's a few issues that really haven't been addressed in the, in the way that a project like of this magnitude, the deep analysis that we need, hasn't been really executed like not only sea level rise, which is a big issue. And then we know that we can get up to, I think the worst case scenario is about uh, 10 feet of sea level rise. That's one of the issues. We also have the the Newport seismic fault that could also render a facility like these basically useless. And the other thing that this plant has that Gospat doesn't is offshore drilling. One of the things that we saw that places like the Middle East have that rely on desalinated water is that they have high security at their offshore drilling sites because if they have a spill, basically their supply of water gets shut off. So uh, we know that we've had many spills here in Southern California, one not too long ago in Santa Barbara, and, and some of that oil made it all the way to Orange County. So we have offshore drilling in Long Beach, in Seal Beach, and in Huntington Beach, and all that oil can make it because of the current to where this plant is planned.
0: Andrea, I, another hazard just occurs to me is we have some shipping lanes that are really getting jammed up right now, that the pandemic has created a little bit of a, a stall in the port facilities. So we've got a lot of super tankers out there, a super tanker, some kind of a spill that could occur, that could also create a problem with the diesel plant.
1: Yeah, that's correct. That's yes not. Yeah. I'm, we, I'm we gonna, need a, a thorough analysis. And that's about, not in there yet. Nobody's talking no, about the off, no. offshore shipping.
0: No. Gonna, oh wow. So let's map okay. out the time frame. It's really important. I want everybody to pencils down on your tablets folks, and keep track of where Andrea is going to lead us from the pivotal beginning of a process coming off the rails, so to speak, with the March, suspension of the Brown Act that the governor succeeded in doing to perhaps accommodate his need to respond to the pandemic emergency. But that Brown Act affects all kinds of communications and meeting requirements of all its elected and appointed officials,
1: correct? Yes. So the Brown Act is still in place, but it was gutted. And for those who don't know what the Brown Act is, it was put in place to have more transparency in government and to ensure public participation. Governor Newsom gutted it to make sure that we have a functioning government. That was his way of putting it. To make sure that while the pandemic was still going, that we could still have local government and regional government and state government still being able to do especially critical bills in any kind of legislation and regulatory ordinances going through. And he himself said anything that is controversial could wait. And I would think that this will be that type of project but it was not deemed controversial by- Were you
0: (laughs) you thinking of the Poseidon Project when, I mean, did your antenna start to tingle? Absolutely. Okay, so you knew, but that takes a fine-tuned activist to see a hazard on the horizon.
1: And that was part of the problem. When we see that this gets gutted, and I know that it was not just the regional water board, there's other entities that I've seen taking a hit. And when public participation takes a hit and transparency takes a hit in government, The ones with the leg up are the corporations. And this is basically what has happened over the last year. So the first meeting that we had, the first hearing uh, for Poseidon with the regional water board was a 12-hour Zoom meeting. That was in May. And that was just absolutely disenfranchising for people who will be affected by this project because people who especially are deemed essential workers are working either as janitors or as nurses' aides or even grocery stores, they cannot take 12 hours off to be part of a Zoom meeting to see if their water rates are going to go up for the next half century.
0: And to put in questions, because that's another problem is that the time for questions, a comment period, closes regardless of when the actual meeting will take place later. And if the meeting is delayed, the comment period isn't
1: extended to address new information. Well, not only that, but then we were also asking the board if they would take comments before or after this mm-hmm. hearing. Yes. And they declined. They said, no, if they want to be listened to, they have to participate in this meeting. And unfortunately, I don't know exactly how or why it happened, but most supporters were basically allowed to go first in, to speak up and most people opposing the plan went later. So even though we did our best to recruit people to ensure that they were able to tell the board what they thought about this project, we lost about 50% of the people we recruited. So it was really devastating. And again, it's just a, another way of disenfranchising those who are going to be affected by this project.
0: And there's, everybody's having Zoom meetings. So it's like if, if anybody even could spend some time in Zoom meetings, I mean, it's just there's a Zoom meeting budget. Even if you even have a budget to go to any zoom meeting. So because uh, and there there were so many kinds of forums for people to watch. So the bandwidth was already filling up with dealing with an understanding of how to manage the pandemic. So this was a huge demand and a level of sophistication that was an additional level of demand on public that has skin in this whole game.
1: Right. And at the same time, we had word that some I think a school was shutting down in Huntington Beach that was one of the ones that was serving one of the parts of Orange County with underserved communities. And those communities have very little access to iPads and computers. And Is even... that Oak Village area? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So th- that was a part of the problem that even if they were able to join by phone, I mean, are you going to be on a phone line for 12 hours? And they were explaining things on the screen about, how this plant is going to operate. And there's a lot of technical information that is hard to understand, even for some of us, in terms of how they're making this sausage in a way. And I mean, for for someone who is just part of the community in terms of not being acquainted with all these legalese and technical stuff, I mean, engineering, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So again, it's just one of those things that it was completely unfair for a lot of people who especially going to be paying the, the steepest price if this plant goes through. So that was the May meeting. Correct.
0: And then, so we're moving along with your time frame and I'm hoping I there's a way I can post that. There's a tremendous graphic you put together. And if a picture's worth a thousand words, this is, this is a 10,000 word document. <laughs> <picture>. <laughs> so so is July then the next stop along the way here with that next round of long meetings before?
1: And I'm gonna- So after that meeting- s- yes. Santa
0: Ana Regional Water Quality Control Board for people to
1: check out. So they wanted to have the next hearing, and by then they decided that instead of having a 12-hour Zoom meeting, they were going to have meetings throughout three days, and they could hear from other folks or more folks, so they could make the hearing a bit more fair. So during those meetings, we later found out that things were happening behind the screen that we did not know about. Just for context, different boards and different commissions have different rules, one of the rules with the regional water board is that I cannot just like call right now one of the board members and say, have you thought about the human rights water in the context of Poseidon? That's illegal. That that's what supposed- is called ex parte. That's, a, that's an ex parte meeting in terms of me having a private conversation with a board member. The only way I can have a, a conversation, well not even a conversation, I, I can have my thoughts expressed before mm-hmm. a board member is doing public comment. That's the only way I can address a board member. And that goes either for me or any elected official or anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. So what we found out is that, and we just found out this uh, a few weeks ago, was that in, in that July and August meeting, the News Administration basically contacted three of the board members to talk about you know, how these proceedings were going and in relationship to the, the water portfolio and beside. So and can that's,
0: I, may I use an, a, a terrible sports analogy? So the pitching coach up in the, the box is is uh, sending a memo down to the, the players on the field.
1: Yes. And uh, and then every, no one else knows kind of the fixes in, and that, you know, this is kind of happening. And then also we found out through the article in the LA Times from Bettina Boxwell that There's also interference from Poseidon with talking to the staff and trying to tell them how to sell this project with slides and different things. So again, we we just think that we have at least a level playing field where we can say, well, you know, this is not needed. Have you thought about the human right to water and other issues that we have with this plant? But apparently there's like a lot more stuff that is happening that we are completely unaware of that is happening that we as a public and as a community do not have access to. We, we cannot go to the staff and tell them, this is what you should really be considering. We don't have that access and we don't have access to the board members with whom the administration spoke. So that is really another whole issue, not only in terms of corruption, but also of inequity. We know that sign has been spending a huge amount of money in terms of influencing through lobbying, through campaign contributions. And that's something that low-income people just cannot do. They, they Andrea, cannot even afford half a lobbyist. And the reason that you happen
0: to know all this is be courtesy of the California Coast Keeper Alliance and I don't know if Bettina Boxer had filed Freedom of Information Act releases. That's the only
1: reason you know about this. You wouldn't have known otherwise. That's correct. So okay. they, I think they both have their own PRAs filed, and that's how we know about this information. Now, In terms of expert communications, for instance, the California Coastal Commission. Some commissioners are open to having them, and when they have them, they they have have to to report them, and they have to report them. So basically, they have ten days to report them. So even if these expertise were legal, they should have told us ten days after the fact, not six months after the fact. So the fact that you know this is coming to light is really disturbing. We think that, you know, this whole process has been rigged and tainted and everyone who has been involved in terms of the board members, you know, I think the minimum thing that needs to be done is for them to recuse themselves from the vote. So now we know that, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scene. We know as a community don't have access to that, uh, not only in terms of us being able to go to the staff and say, you know, you should consider equity, you should consider the human right to water. And we also know that Poseidon has a tremendous amount of money to influence decision makers and to influence the governor. Uh, They have hired an army of lobbyists. And in terms of equity, we know low-income people cannot even hire half a lobbyist. So the
0: concern, the offense I took with the governor's French laundry dinner that piqued me at the most was who was present at the dinner? Who had access to the governor for that dinner? I actually am more concerned about that, or as concerned about that as I am about the, the optics that were totally, totally off, tone totally deaf. But talk a little bit about who we, I mean, there's the medical association lobbyists, but talk about the lobbyist whose client is Poseidon, who's present at the French laundry dinner.
1: So yeah, in the middle of November, when we know COVID is going to cause a lot of trouble with Californians we see that the governor just basically exempt himself from these protocols to go and celebrate the 50th birthday of Jason Kinney, who's basically the lobbyist not only for Poseidon, but for also a couple of big oil companies that are known for basically drilling where low-income people of color live. So we know that he's willing to put aside his safety to ensure that you know, he celebrates with a lobbyist who also is a close friend and an advisor. But it's not only him who's sitting at the table, but also a lot of lobbyists who are celebrating with him. And, and I think that also puts into perspective about you know, who is the governor prioritizing when it comes to California. And, and that's really troublesome in terms of like just looking back and seeing just what has happened with the Pasaan proceedings. Now, just like a few, yeah, we go
0: go back to the timeline. We need to resume. So, with the appointments that one of the board members, the Santa Ana Regional Water Quality Control Board—that's a mouthful—that Mister Von Blasengame, a retired engineer, whose term was ending, and instead of having him being reappointed, Mister Von Blasengame had raised very critical knowing questions about the performance of this application of the Poseidon, about the mitigation plan that was, was just simply just not addressed for the meeting. It made him, Mr. Von Blasinghe, wonder why the meeting was even taking place July, August with the Water Quality Control Board. So tell us about his replacement, how he found out to the extent that you know, as well as there was an additional replacement made to shuffle the composition of the Water
1: Quality Control Board. So yeah, usually most appointees, if they want to keep their appointment, they usually get to do that. And most of them are giving at least a month grace period to do that. Vice Chair von Blassengame was given about two weeks, and then he was promptly removed. Most appointments for last year were announced in November. So he was clearly out of that cycle and just like stuck up like a sore thumb. It, it was just so evident that sign just needed to get rid of him. And he was no environmentalist. Like you said, he's an engineer who was just asking common sense questions. Do we really need this plan right now? Can it be smaller? Does he need to be at this specific location? As a business person, as an engineer, he, he had just a lot of questions that would benefit the public. And we did write a letter to the governor a month before his term was up just a, a group of environmental justice and environmental groups asking the governor to please keep him in place. And to our knowledge, Vice Chair von Blasingen was not given a reason why he was taken off the board. So I think that was very telling in terms of how that happened. And uh, I don't know exactly how he was notified. We, we just know that Letitia Clark was appointed. And what we do know is that- Who is, she, she
0: is a member of the Tustin City Council. She was re-elected. She was, yeah.
1: I think now she's the mayor of Tustin, and what we do know is that she had met with the head of the building trades in April. So we don't know whether she met with him to discuss his appointment or to be vetted. We just know that it's likely that things were put in motion since then. Um, so it's it's one of those things that now that we know that you know calls were made, that all this money has been spent in lobbying. And that even the staff was trying to be persuaded by Poseidon to push this plan and and even talking points on how to sell it. It's just very disheartening. And we know that low-income people in Orange County are going to be affected by this project and have been disenfranchised by the whole proceedings, especially last year. Um, It's very troublesome.
0: Well, it's gotten worse with their their housing circumstances that... um, that with, with rent during a pandemic, with job uh, stability, I mean all these things, and then you're going to get a water bill?: <laughs> Well, not only your, that.
1: We, I mean, we in California already have over one billion dollars in water debt, and that's just going to keep growing. And if we really set our priorities right and we really value the human right to water, we would put that money to ensure that no one loses the access to water instead of building a boondoggle that will benefit a foreign corporation.
0: So Andrea, as we close here, there there is a great deal to break down all the way, but I, if we could, in a sort of a shorter stroke, if we could talk about have you finished addressing whether the Brown Act, if there are ways to roll back its protections for some modicum, some improvement of transparency and who folks should be contacting while the Poseidon application is hurtling through a, approval space, including uh, before the coastal com- California Coastal Commission, which may there may be even a slate of hand about not having the California Coastal Commission look at this. So what will happen with the Brown Act in your best guess and who should folks be
1: contacting now? So right now there's two requests for written public comment before the regional water board. One is for the ex parte communication, and the other one is for the permit. And by the way, Pasan is also going to present their own permit because they don't like the permit that they have from the staff. They don't want to start mitigating the day they start polluting or discharging basically what they did with Calspat. So we really need to be paying attention to that. After that, that will be the California Coastal Commission. And we, I mean, really can start talking to them right now. We'll be giving uh, general comments. The commissioners. Comment, the commissioners.
0: Yeah, okay, and, loading uh, them up.
1: Everything is by Zoom. So we, we just need to tell them, this is a type of project that is going to hurt communities. It's going to hurt the climate. It's going to contribute to climate change. And it's not going to do absolutely nothing for the human right to water. So that's another agency that we can tackle. We really need to let Governor... Newsom, that the meddling is not okay, that he needs to put Californians above his friends and lobbyists. And more than anything, that again, protecting the the human right to water should be number one and reinstating the Brown Act as it was and making it stronger. We really need to put Californians first. The fact that right now the corporations have a leg up is just not acceptable. The pandemic is not where we were a year ago. In terms of how we're going to be vaccinating folks. I mean, the governor is honestly talking about equity and we should hold him accountable.
0: So is there, I heard one murmuring that there could be a suspension of a California Coastal Commission review of this application for the Poseidon project. Is that something that, that the governor could
1: unilaterally make happen? Well, we don't know like the extent that he could go. But But that's, are you hearing that as well? I haven't heard that. But what I did hear from last year, Posein actually went to Sacramento to try to do a gut and amend bill, basically just introducing something at the last minute to exempt Poseidon from any and every regulation, and that that included the Coastal Act. And the problem with that is that it could set precedent for other projects. Poseidon is already talking to West Basin because they are setting their eyes on... Which is a water
0: district in, in the in portion yeah. of Los Angeles, yes.
1: Hunting the Beach is not an endgame. It's just part of their expansion and growth. And we simply cannot be having this massive plants that are going to be contributing to climate change and ocean acidification and all kinds of horrible things that we simply don't need.
0: Well, so this would add to the portfolio of Brookfield investors that they can say, well, we've had this project online, we have this project, and it's sort of the momentum that makes it harder for, let's say, the next area to oppose a sadly advised desalination plant.
1: Right. Again, I mean, corporations are going to be greedy and and they want to you know, grow and that's their business. But it's, you know, our business as Californians is to ensure that we have a human right to water and that we put Californians above profits.
0: So Andrea, there's so much more to say. I hope that you're clearing some of this debris on the water supply story in we'll call it Southern California, but it's really statewide, it's West Coast wide, that we can give listeners a ability to think critically
1: about how things are being covered in the name of investment. There's that, and there's also the fact that now Wall Street is trading with water futures. So this will basically play right into that. I mean, as I was saying that that Poseidon doesn't like the permit that the staff came up with because they have to start discharging. But so they're going to come up with their own plan and they're going to let them present it before the board, which is unheard of. It's like
0: before staff,
1: before the board. So no, the the staff is going to have their own permit. Oh, they're going to bypass staff. They're going to give like an alternate mitigation, an alternate permit where they can start mitigation whenever they feel like it. And the thing is that Pasaan keeps saying that, oh, we're going to get all this tax revenue from building the plant. And and I think the tax revenue is about 70 million. But that in comparison to the 2 billion that they want to build this plant is just absurd. And we're trying to come up with different strategies. I'm also trying to coordinate with the tribes is that there was no proper tribal consultation. Some of the tribal members who are, they're going to submit letters. You need to do proper consultation. And all this water board did was send five letters to PO boxes, and that was it. So I am working with a liaison, and the problem also with with, uh, indigenous communities, they're the ones who were hit hardest by the pandemic.
0: The governor is in a position to
1: appoint different coastal commissioners. Some of them are are by the governor. Some of them are by either the pro tem Atkins or the speaker Rendon, and unfortunately, The leadership is also pro-Poseidon. They have gotten also money from Poseidon in terms of campaign contributions. So we are also very worried about those appointments. We are looking very closely at how that develops. We, I think, are sending some recommendations to the governor in terms of who we want to see appointed. It's not just Poseidon that we are worried about. Like the whole... Coastal Act and how we're going to make sure that that gets enforced and respected. Because right now we know that at every turn, you know, there's there's a lot of business-friendly regulators and, or as we call it, capture regulators. So we, we really need, need to make sure that we appoint people that are going to make sure that also the environmental justice policy gets enforced. So so Andrea, how do
0: listeners though follow what the governor's review? I mean, it's the governor's and the state senate and the state assembly. So how can that be followed? What's a reliable source there for that? The-
1: that gets a little bit more tricky because I don't think he really, you know, does like a whole that's not that's not a process that is very, very transparent in terms of how like who picks whom, like whether it's the governor, the pro tem, or the speaker. They need to review like the applications or you know whomever wants to to be appointed. Usually, you're able to send in your an application if you want to be appointed. Not only to the coastal commission, but usually any commission or board, and they they're supposed to review your qualifications along with other factors. In some cases, the appointment needs to be from someone who's an elected official. Sometimes it's a member of the public. So there's different things that go into that. Um, And then the the governor needs to make a decision. But again, there's a lot of of things that are happening, again, behind the scenes that it's, I don't think it's fair for Californians. No, it's
0: not. So Andrea, can we though, is there a relationship we cultivate with our assembly and state senators that we can say uh, as a constituent, I am requesting an update on what you're aware of is going to be the uh, California Coastal Commission appointment coming out of your chamber. Is that another yes, relationship yeah, that, that,
1: to build? That's, a, that's a, word, a way to do it. And I know like my own assembly member, now Senator, uh, Cindy Kamlager, had her own town hall about six months ago about appointments and how to get them. And that's also how I know some of, of this uh, nuance. Uh, but it's really interesting how how to do that, and I think everyone really should be reaching out to their own legislators and say, "You really need to have a town hall like this to see how this works and how the the process can be even more transparent For, at the state level to make it, you know, as we emerge from the pandemic, how can we make it more equitable? AB 339 is a bill to expand access to government meetings at every level. So that means city council, that means state, that means regional. So basically what they want to do is to ensure that people really have access to the government. And I think what we really need to do is to ensure that as we emerge from the pandemic, that a lot of the Zoom meetings or WebEx or whatever they're using stay in place so that and are recorded
0: it, and that's an archive exactly. that's accessible okay
1: that's that's one thing and that we can also go in public because one of the things that happens with technology is that they can cut you off in in do all kinds of shenanigans or just pretend that you never logged in or whatever so there's a lot of censorship ha- happening they can identify numbers and if you're you know someone who you know different entities, government entities, if you're someone who's always speaking up and they just don't want to hear from certain individuals, it's very easy just to pretend that, you know, someone never called. So when you're in person, it's a lot harder to pretend that you were not there. So So, when people are showing up, I think it's important that we have different ways of participating in government, especially since we have the technology now. And if we have an in-person meeting, I think the more access we have is the, the more transparent it will be.
0: Well, you know what is the, the shorthand for this AB339 is the don't mute me bill. There you go. <laughs> so this is where the mute meets the road, AB339. Okay. it's That touches everybody. Seriously. And, yeah. And so instead of maybe infrastructure porn, it'll be public public forum (laughs) porn yeah no we've got it we've got to replace the gratuitous joys with that we got we got to change our porn game to something i mean why not i mean all the infrastructure you know i I strongly them all okay so thank you andrea for this extra time to join us here on digging out thank you for having me my guest was andrea leon grossman Climate Action Director for Azul talking about the Poseidon water desalination project proposed in Huntington Beach, California. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening,
1: everyone.